Welcome to the Psychic Guys. Today, your regular hosts, David, Daz, Brat, and at least one Josh, are joined by special guest John Knowles. John has been involved with the world of remote viewing since 1999, when he first met Prue Calabrese and got involved with transdimensional systems. He's the author of Remote Viewing from the Ground Up, and more recently, Associative Remote Viewing, the Art and Science of Predicting Outcomes for Sports, Politics, Finances, and the Lottery. This is what we're going to discuss today, so welcome, John, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. Looking forward to starting. So, our last episode, um, you rightly pointed out that we we didn't cover the successes that remote viewers have had in the lottery because we we were focusing rather on the pitfalls of predicting the future. And uh, yeah, you you pointed out that, that there have been some successes. So, should we start the discussion there? And maybe you can teach us how to do it. <laughs> sure, I'll I'll start with a couple of comments. So, yes. Um, as we put it out, pointed out in our book, there have been at least three major hits, uh, major gains in lottery, uh, $325,000, $101,000 actually, and then $75,000 by three different people or groups. And they each used different methods uh, and all were pick fives. So they weren't uh, the huge super lottos and they weren't pick three or pick four. Um, but those are substantial amounts of money and we can discuss some of the methods, if we want to later on, it's in our book, Chapter 21, Deborah Katz and my book uh, on Associated Remote Viewing. In addition, um, two people have told me that they've had 50 to 100 pick three wins, um, but they didn't document it. They didn't write it up. Um, I know those people somewhat. I, I trust what they're saying. And I, myself, I've had um, about 35 pick three and pick four wins. I just reviewed that data. Um, those are the ones I bet. I had some additional hits, um, 27, in fact, that I didn't bet because they came before I found out the method that works for me. So, yes, there have been hits, but they still are very few and far between. It doesn't help us get numbers on license plates exactly, but, but we look at some of the methods we've used for lottery and so forth, and maybe those will carry over for other people. It does seem to be an individual-type situation where a one-size-does-not-fit-all. Uh, I have a combination of methods that work for me. Other people, you know, have used different methods, and uh, it's just going to vary with, with people. Even if, if you want to put uh, time into the lottery, sorry, my throat is kind of uh, dry. <laughs> yeah, so that's a first quick introduction to some of the hits that have been achieved in lottery. And then, of course, there's a subject of ARB hits, too. I don't know if we want to get to that, but that's also quite interesting. And some recent developments there are worth talking about at some point. I think ARV is definitely worth talking about. That's uh see if we can have a discussion around what the state of the art is on making making money with lottery, sports bets, markets, whatever. Yeah. Um, because I think lots of people would like to do it, and uh, not nearly so many people have success with it, right? Yeah, that's when I know Marty, you know, in the APP, the Applied Precognition Project, has been at this for 20 years, and has said that if we could make a lot of money using remote viewing, binary associated remote viewing, that would be one way to impress society with the reality of remote viewing. And I actually sort of tended to agree with that, which is why I joined him in 2010 for six years and was very active in the group, which has 2,000 members, by the way. And recently, uh, they have had some, just a quick success using some new methods that Eric Schoener, a, a German doctor, 
uh, PhD has devised, and we could talk about that a bit. But overall, in those 20 years, there have been no millionaires made slowly or quickly. Marty said, you know, let's, let's get rich slowly. It's not happened. It's been, uh, last I saw, there were $23,000 had been made by the APPI, the pros who have, uh, get paid to, for, from their good results. And the overall statistics until recently had fallen down to around 50, 50 50.1, 51% or so, taking all the groups together. But of course, if you have huge numbers of groups, you're very likely to get a lot of failing results, or at least you're not going to get the high quality results that someone like uh, Ed May has using three remote viewers that he claims are the best in the world, using his own software, you know, uh, uh, making a lot, lot of money apparently. And that's also been renewed recently. He told me that they, renewed doing that and making more money again. Although he's looking for some new viewers, as I think I've mentioned to a few people. And I think he has one or two he's trying out. I'm not sure where that that's where that's at. I haven't uh, seen that for about a year. Why do you think the uh, there is so much variance between viewers where when you take a whole bunch of, I mean, obviously APP, they have training. Marty does a great job of doing that, of bringing people together. I know he does like monthly webinars and stuff like that. And it's not that a lot of the viewers don't know the steps or the strategies. I'm curious what you think, John, about why there is so much variance. Because I've seen very similar things where some viewers, they actually are exceptional at precognition of getting forecasts at a much higher rate above chance, whereas others, even though they're using the same techniques, seem to land in like, it's like flipping a coin, I mean, over a long period of time. Or they'll run into things where it they have a really amazing initial success and then they just they go right back down to the mean after about after a few months of doing it like they're right back down to a coin flip after about two or three months of doing it even though they had a lot of good success maybe because it was new but i'm I'm just curious what what your thoughts are behind yeah. that kind of phenomenon that we see yeah i think it's important to bring up as you do the decline effect pretty much everybody notices that angela thompson smith's another person who's tried this many different times with marty and by herself and always says she runs into the decline effect um, as for I think, you know, also when you look at just regular remote viewing, uh, there's an incredible variety of techniques there. And as Daz and as all of us can attest, over time, you develop your own variant of what you were taught. I was taught transdimensional, and I've uh, used other techniques and different forms of ideograms. The same with Don Walker, who was the, you know, one of the uh, members of the public demonstration team in remote viewing. When have we ever heard of that other than Joe McMonagall? excellent viewer and he's also developed his own techniques he was in, he was a car is a chiropractor but he's dropped out of the field and then athena a third reviewer also had her own techniques and tunde who's who's also still around from cr from those days also has his own techniques so i think there's an incredible variety among regular remote viewers and that carries over into um binary arp however i think the main reason for one of the main reasons for the failure to get into 70 and 80 percentages which is what we've been trying to do all these years uh, it is because of uh, a combination of uh, the photo photos that are chosen and how they're chosen and there hasn't been developed a great pool. But more importantly is this leakage issue of having a very tight protocol. And this is what Eric is doing and what Marty adopted too, and which is also done in the $325,000 lottery with very tight protocol, meaning you have a division of labor. You don't talk about things before or after the viewers are, are informed very little about what's going on they'll only and particularly important they'll only see the winning photograph that's all they'll ever see that's true for all three of those um p 
people and groups I mentioned. And that just hasn't been done in APP, and uh, often it's not done anywhere. Uh, you, you look on Discord and, and, and uh, Reddit, and you see that people are doing the, uh, the, the ARP tournament, and they see both images. But that's just universal, pretty much. So it's rare, actually, to limit it to um, just seeing one image. And of course, not to get into it right now, but there's also something called unitary ARV. We have only one target. Daz experimented with that. I've experimented with it. Elisa's experimented with it. Um, and that still is an undeveloped area that I think it hasn't been mined as much as many of these other areas. So I think there's a combination of factors that account for this variability of methods and results in both in all these fields. And, and probably you have some insight into markets and how it might play in there because different people have done markets. We had a huge experiment, as as may, people may know, in APP, where we had, a I don't know, maybe eight, <laughs> 15 groups and all kinds of viewers, and we had $60,000 involved, and it failed. We knew going in it was going to be unlikely because keep it simple, stupid, uh, keep it simple, <laughs> stupid kiss, you know? And we didn't keep it simple, but we wanted to try it anyway. Um, anyway, so I certainly would, if you have insights you want to share on this broadcast, I know you have on other broadcasts about markets, and variety like that, that would be important too. Wow. Your keep it simple, stupid is so important, I found, with markets. And this is where, you know, like, because I do contract work for a number of different just private investors that uh, I've met over the years. And um, sometimes they want me to do some really, it's like, okay, let's take this really advanced formula and this indicator and let's put this all together. And I'm trying to think, well, I can kind of figure out what that means consciously. But to actually get to the answer, it's like incredibly complex math. It's like, I can't do this consciously. And so we experimented. I've done experiments with that over three, four months in a row. And the, the accuracy was nowhere near what the much more simple, will this be profitable? Won't this be profitable? Will the market go up? Will the market go down? That like super simple type of question had a much higher overall accuracy rate compared to taking these really complex formulaic calculations. And at the end of it, I was like, I wonder, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, it's a, it's an inference. I'm inferring. I wonder if the unconscious, it just, if you can't do it simply in your own mind, like, yeah, maybe the unconscious is better at doing things, but maybe it's also not necessarily the great at doing crazy complicated math as well to give you the answer. So uh, we, after that experiment, we returned to more keeping it simple. It's just, will this contract be profitable or not? And uh, whenever looking at the task setup, it's always been, how do we reduce the complexity as much as we can? And that has led to more success, at least in, in the work that I've done, as opposed to the, the really complex stuff. So it's interesting to hear that that from you too, though, John, that you've, you've seen some more things about the KISS principle in, in setups. Mm -hmm. I just did one more quick note on that. So when I worked with Don and Rolo, and we did uh, some of this unitary stuff. They wanted the taskings worded specifically for them. And so I did. I was the project manager. And Don liked long sentences and particular variables in the wording. And Roma wanted something different. And then uh, a woman in Australia had her own method, too. She wasn't a real viewer, but she had her own wording. So, again, variety is the spice of life here, as far as I can see, along with tight protocols. For sure. So would you guys say the protocol is more important than the specific methodology? Because if we take the lottery, for example, people have loads of different approaches to getting numbers, like doing ideograms or associating with pictures or smells or dowsing or visual reads on it. And 
is that really the determining factor whether it works or not or is it the protocol within which you're doing that that's having the bigger effects what do you guys think if it, i would say it's practice and that most of us when we do these is experiments we'll do it hardcore for a week or two um and then we'll like tell off whereas what i find within future forecasting is you know when we like predicting the markets and stuff is that uh, the methodology for me to do that confidently on a on a monthly basis took probably 18 months to two years of doing it every single week to come out I think I, don't, I think people give up way too fast and they don't put two years yeah. into learning the technique to do the numbers properly. Anyone, just pick one and then just do it like like RV, just do it for 18 months to two years and don't don't give up. I'd echo that. I'd echo that from just my own experience. When I started doing ARV back in 20, like I started 2016, I think 2017 is when I started doing ARV more seriously. And my results for the first year or two were just terrible. I mean, <laughs> it's, and the funny thing was, is the the viewing was decent. I just had displacement, nonstop displacement. And uh, where I just would like I very clearly hit one of the photos. It just very rarely beyond chance was the right photo. <laughs> and so, you know, there is, there's a lot of different ways that I, you know, experimented with to try and improve that. But it was just banging my head against the wall for years and years and years until I found something that, hey, oh, it's actually getting better. And to the point where, you know, I could use it with other people. So, yeah, I think there's probably something to that does where you just have to train, put, put in your hours, I guess. Yeah. Brett, could I you think... just quickly clarify for listeners displacement and ARV and what you're doing? Because a lot of people won't be familiar with the exact techniques here. Yeah, well, I, I try to, ex very simply, displacement is the idea behind you're describing the wrong photo. You've displaced to the wrong photo. I'm sure there's other definitions. John probably could give a better definition uh, of it than I could. But uh, displacement is usually just you're, you're describing the wrong photo and you assume you're being displaced there as opposed to the right photo. Do you have a better description, John, of how you would kind of frame it? Well, in our book, we talked about several different kinds of displacement where you may be getting information from both targets or uh, you may get information from the wrong target. And this actually leads to our conclusion in the book that the, the method which has been established in parapsychology for many years, where you have four or five targets and you judge your, your, your psi, your PSI, based on selecting one of those four targets, that's a fatally flawed method. And yet it's been used by these uh, parapsychologists, academics for decades. And I think Stephen Schwartz has even said that he's not going to do that anymore, and a few other leading people. Um, so, yeah, you, and anytime you have more than one target, you're likely to have some sort of displacement. And that's the, been the problem with APP's binary ARV and everybody else's binary ARV. So uh, there's different ways to get around it, but that's, that's and you're right, that's, that's basically what it is. You're going to the wrong, wrong. Okay. Photo pool has been a big thing that I put a lot of time into because a lot of the pools, like you mentioned, John, uh, there, there hasn't been a lot of effort that's been put into making sure that there's a lot of asymmetry from these binary photos where, I mean, I just realized we were talking about ARV and we didn't even explain really what ARV is. <laughs> uh, to, to the, to I think the you should do that. <laughs> so maybe just a, a very 30 second overview. It, it's, it's really not too complicated. You take two photographs, you associate some, here's a simple example. Market is going to go up by the end of the day. You associate the picture of a dog, obviously it'd be randomized to some extent. I uh, market's going to close down for the day. You associate the picture of a mountain range, something like that. And then the viewer obviously doesn't know what these associations are. They're tasked with describing the out. There's two different ways to do it. 
one that most people use is what's the photo that they'll be shown later in the day? Because later in the day, the project manager will go, oh, the market went up. Let me show the viewer this photograph. And that's their, their task. I use a slightly different tasking method personally, which is where instead of requiring uh, someone to show me a photo at the end of the day, I simply ask the question, what's the correct association based on what happens? And it's just a different way of changing where you're, how you're doing the wording. And that I've had more success doing that. I also do all my work solo though. So I've had to uh, make sure that, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, I have to rely on other people to, to do taskings kind of stuff, but uh, that's the really simple way of doing it. And then you're just trying to describe the photograph in advance to forecast what will happen in the future. So I don't know. That's my, that's my 30 second description. Maybe someone else has a different one. <laughs> I missed something. <laughs> yeah. What techniques have you been using for, have you just been focusing on lottery or have you been doing ARB stuff as well? Oh, yeah. me? I thought you said John. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I said Josh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've done, I've done a lot of, um, that app RV tournament. Um, and that's, uh, that's a, you'll see the, you'll see the photo later in the day type, type setup. And, um, I actually just did a 30 day trial, you know, on, uh, in December, I was, I was, I was trying to, uh, hit the top of the chart there and I got as high as fourth place. I think it was day 15 or 16. And, uh, at, at that point I, I just absolutely, I was, I think it was like 73% or something like that. And my rating just started to tank. I got like eight in a row wrong a displacement again, like just so, and, and I remember talking to you about this, David, I was like, man, what's going on. And, and, uh, you, you brought up the, the fact that I, I wanted it too much. You know, I, I was, I was focused on the result, on the outcome. I think, I think the cycle I've been really spinning on the psychological side of, of this, uh, this whole thing, um, with displacement, actually, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Um, I mean, with, uh, for example, in that, in that case, you know, I had this, I had it built up in my head, like, oh, I'm doing so well. I want to, I want to keep this going. Um, and, and also, you know, when I've tried to do it and there's been money on the line, I found I get, I get more displacement in those cases, which is why I switched to RV tournament for, for training, because, you know, there's, there's no financial component, you know, it's, it's keep it simple. Um, you know, the, the more, the more kind of factors I think that you might have loading you down subconsciously, um, probably contribute to that. Um, interestingly enough, I was, I was going through, um, uh, I remember David, you did, you did a, a session on the lottery that you guys talked about in the last, uh, or rather a, a target on, on why remote viewers have trouble winning the lottery in your last episode. And I, I, in my data for that session, I actually had keep it simple and, and it came through as a kiss song first <laughs> love gun. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I derived from it in the session. So uh, I saw that right before the episodes. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I've, I, I've had better success when there isn't money on the line. Um, with Lotto, I tend to do the dowsing approach um, just because, I mean, I'm a bass player, so I, I do finger dowsing because I, I have really good somatic response in my hands. And, um, and, and I did run into the same thing that you guys described in the other episode where, you know, I'll get two out of three on the, on the pick three and that third one will be plus or minus one, like, you know, constantly it's, it's frustrating, but, um, yeah, I, th I think my blockage there is really, it's probably, it feels like it's rooted in that subconscious thing where, where the outcome is, uh, is important. So for whatever reason, that's kind of throwing me off the, um, the trail a little bit, uh, just introducing noise into into the signal i suppose or something like that just yeah i think that's a really important point uh, or two points you made there is the emotional 
aspect to accuracy. Like if you've got any emotional stuff going on, just in a normal remote viewing session or trying to do any psychic work, if you're still angry because you had an argument with your spouse or you're worried about paying bills or, you know, whatever, if that's going around in your head, it's going to impact performance. I think that gets worse. You know, you need to, you don't need to come at it with some kind of weird Zen empty state of mind, but you do need to be kind of emotionally level and not constantly being distracted by your feelings. And I think if there's, if there's money on the line, especially if it's meaningful money, you know, because I never win more than 10 quid on the lottery. I don't know. I get two numbers right. It doesn't matter what lottery I play. I get two numbers right. I might win a five or a tenner. That's it. It won't, yeah. it won't perform any better than that. Um, yeah, I, I got some more to say about motivation and so forth. So, um, when I had my wins in the pick, uh, pick four, pick three and so forth over the period of months and years, you know, when I was in transdimensional systems, one of our models there was, you know, you get what you get. And so don't sweat it. You know, you just, and so that's carried over with me ever since. I don't have any anxiety no matter what I'm remote doing, uh, including lottery. But I wanted to do it and bet on it to make sure that there wasn't a difference between dry runs when I wasn't betting and when I was betting. And, to, you know, to make sure it's real, in other words. So, so that's one thing. So, so there's someone called Greg Kay, called it Z-Winch. I don't know how to pronounce his last name that people, uh, we all know in the industry. He was a one of really initiated a 13-year experiment in associated remote viewing and made around $130,000 using his methods. Um, and he's still at it. In fact, he started a new trial called the Time Machine, and I volunteered to be part of it. Well, after uh, I did about six of these, I, I was way up, you know, I was high on the leaderboard already after doing six. And he said, well, you know, we want people who are willing to do this um, and not know the results, viewers who will not get the results till after the whole thing is over. I said, okay. So now I started doing that. And so I, I, I'm at C, you know, I don't know if my motivation or what is involved here, but he sent me a reminder because I'd only do one or, you know, one or two a week. And that's another thing I think important to mention for folks who may want to get into this. And Ed May has often told Marty and, and all of us, you guys do too much ARV. And he's had a lot of success just doing a little bit. Like he'll, when he has people come out to the West Coast, he'll just have them do one a day and then they go out and have dinner. Whereas in APP, we were doing tons and tons and the people who are doing open tournament are doing that too. So I think that's a, a really important point just to know what we're doing. So I'm going to try to do more for Greg, but I feel like I'm in a space where nothing's happening because I don't know the results. You know, And also you can't submit pictures. You just submit words. And I'm really used to submitting images that I draw as well as words. And so it's a whole different trip. But, but Greg's a, you know, a great guy. He's done a lot of, for the field. And I figure I'll, I'll try it and see what happens. Um, and I, so I don't even get to see the leaderboard anymore. I don't know who, who, who's winning or not. But it's a, it's a novel way to go about it. I don't know how long it'll last, but it's kind of fun in a way. If my experience is anything to go off of not seeing the leaderboard might be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I could see that being useful potentially probably depends on the person would be just my guess but i just in my own work i used to do a lot of sports betting with arv and i found when i watched the game or at least i had the scores up oh. that i kept checking back regularly first of all yeah. it's just stress it's just my my stress levels it goes like, oh dear you know but i found that my work my hit rate actually was better when i wasn't watching the games and I, would, yeah. I submitted the work and, you know, whoever was placed in the bed, I was like, this is, this is what my work says, go wow. do take it and let me know how I did. And then just send me a text message at the end of the night 
with hit or miss and just give me the feedback for that. And when it, when I simplified again, here's the simplification again, down to that where it's just, okay, I'm just going to submit it and then let go of it and stop and not be invested. Even though there is, I know there's money on the line. I found that it just worked better overall. So it's like this investment of outcome type of thing. Like, oh, I really need this to be right. When that's a variable mm. in your in attachment your, to results, attachment it? to the results. It it's almost when, like when you watch the game as well. It's like you're wrecking your own work retroactively, is it? Because you're injecting all of this emotion and stuff into your session in the past, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I actually had a funny thing. I did a random game uh, like two weeks ago for someone, and I set this thing where I'm not going to look at it. And then I figured, surely it must be over. They hadn't texted me yet. And so I figured, eh, they probably just forgot or something. So let me just take a look. Because it was like three hours past the game. It was like a hockey game. I don't know. It was. It felt like a long time. Uh, and I looked, and the team I, that I had, my, my pick for the team, was winning by three points. It was like four to one or something like that. And there was like 10 minutes left. And I was like, oh, crap, it's not over yet. Well, my team's up, so look, looks looking good. 10 minutes they lose the game and they and Ooh, so it's like did i, I, I feed, knew where that story was going did did i, did I feedback myself with the winner yeah <laughs> like by doing that i was like oh, i it's, should never it have seems looked. often that we can end up predicting a team that's going to be in the lead for most of the game and then lose as well i don't yeah, know why even if we don't watch the game so i mean where the hell is the information even coming from it's yeah. it's a real black box problem i wondered if i had I like feedbacked myself with the wrong mm. winner, which then retroactively affect affected the work. You know how there's a lot of those do time loops exist? Are you getting the feeling? Mm. There's a lot of belief around that. We talked about that in the last the last session. John, I'm actually curious what you think about that. The ah. entire time loop model that we we talked about it in our last uh, our last episode. Do, how do you think precognition works? Based on, I mean, you've been doing this longer. I mean, certainly way longer than me. So I'm very curious what you think. Well, I'm writing a book, as you may have heard, which starts with uh, dialectics and ends up with remote viewing. And mm -hmm. during the course of this book, I'm finalizing sort of my views on, on these different topics. Um, you know, one of the topics is is consciousness, the fundamental. And if it, that's what Marty says, you know, in APP. Um, and coming out of a materialist background, I have a lot of issues with that, even though I think remote viewing is obviously completely a real phenomenon and Psy is too. So then there's books like, I think Eric Varvel wrote a book on time loops and Marty talks a lot about time loops and also people talk about retrocausation, influencing the past. Um, I don't use any of those models when I remote view myself and I am not wedded to any particular one because I'm kind of, I'm not a scientist, but I'm really evidence-based and, and unless I see, you know, science that really can prove that, um, I'm sort of uh, agnostic actually on it. So. I know a lot of people have through, you know, definite opinions. There's a lot of talk about quantum mechanics and how that plays in too. And on all these topics, I'm, I'm saying I'm more interested in the practical results that we can get and how to get them. And the theory totally. I'm also studying that, reading tons about that. But nonetheless, I, until I, you know, Gary Nolan's a great model of this, you know, the scientist who's been looking into UFOs and he's a high, you know, set down for a scientist, really top notch and he's very open minded, but he also, refuses to come down hard on any particular um, theory or event until he really knows a lot about it. I, I find him a model in that respect. So it's a disappointing answer in a way, but it's like, let's, you know, 
show me the results. I'm from Missouri. Let's, let's do the results. And theorize, yes, but let's hold that in the bay until we're really certain about what the heck we're, we're claiming. Definitely. I think that that's... Uh... I think it's a great answer because in a lot of this, when we're doing ARV, we're kind of feeling around in the dark. We don't know why, what's how it's working under the hood. And so we're constantly guessing, which also makes it really challenging, which I'm sure you've been doing for so long can probably attest to where you're trying to problem solve. Well, what's the, what's the, what's the problem? How do we fix this? Is it the photos? Is it the protocol? Is it the viewer? Is it the subconscious struggling? Is it external interference? You know, is there something that, uh, is there some element or variable that is interfering with viewers with intent? And then that is that potentially causing it. So, but there's no way to prove any of this because it's, we just don't have the right measurement tools for consciousness. Before we, just before we move the conversation on away from here, I just wanted to ask Daz, you've been running an ARV trial with future forecasting and there's been no feedback. We have no idea what we're doing. We're just sending in sessions and getting, and all, all we get back is money. So, yeah. well, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, it's an <laughs> ideal situation as a viewer, but uh, have, have you so far found the results of that have been good, Daz? Um, well, it's only like the, it's only the second m- month. And just as an overview for these guys, though, um, future forecasting are spending uh, $1,000 a month paying. Uh, David and several others uh, to do ARV experiments. Um, it's on a, it's on a multitude of different things. I'm not going to say what they are, um, but you know you can guess what it is. And, you know, yeah, like don't don't give me market. feedback. Let's not uh, and real experiment. events as well. Uh, and you know it's weird things like working. You know, you, if you imagine that I'm working with Marty, who's our trader guy. Uh, some of them are like a, you know what I would class as obscure. Um, bonds and other markets, whether they're going to move up or down and, and stuff like that. Um, but the approach we're using at the moment is uh, an approach I've been playing around with for a year or so, which is ideograms. So the guys, all they need to provide me is a single ideogram and their decoding of that ideogram. So it's literally, oh, I think David does his RV sessions for it in like 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, how long does it take to do an ideogram? Yeah. And, and you know, for me as an analyst, it's either an ideogram of up or down or it's an ideogram of land or water. It's, you know, just not, there's not many places to go with it. You know, I, I keep into the keep it simple approach, the more simple of the, for everyone. Yeah, well, you, you did a trial ideogram? for the... Oh, it really is just an ideogram. I, well, no, for those I, who maybe don't, don't know what that oh, is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Come yeah, an ideogram is just like a very basic, almost like auto, uh, automatic writing uh, scribble or doodle that we get in response to, you know, uh, thinking about the target for the very first time. And yeah. it's just a little... Here, here's one that's on my desk now. Yeah. <laughs> just, a, just a squiggle. So they give me those. Uh, I'm the project manager. Uh, I analyze it and, you know, it's either, as I said, it's either a squiggle that looks like it's going up or a squiggle that looks like it's going down. I mean, there's no misinterpretation in that reading yeah but you know i have to be honest sometimes we get a squiggle that does go up and down um which would be the displacement uh thing i guess not so much though. i don't think displacement happens as much when it's this simple because there are no pretty pictures for people to like you know be attracted to water because there's a big like flowing stream picture there and the other one's just like a stone on you know stone on a bench kind of thing so when when you set these tasks up the the associations with the outcomes are just like an ideogram that you've drawn that yes. says water underneath it or something. So there's no actual target. There's just that high level concept there. 
Uh, yeah, and yeah, the tasking that I write on the sheet of paper is something along the lines of the remote viewer will only sketch and describe uh, an ideogram that has an outwards movement. And that outwards movement means that they will be picking target A. And, you know, the next one would be blah, 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 downwards moment, movement, and, and that would be target target B. As simple as that. I do, but I do switch it around. So, yeah, as, as you know, sometimes I'm asking you to do um, up or down ideograms because I tell them, I say, I want an up or down ideogram. And sometimes I tell them I want a, a standard Gestalt ideogram. You know, the Gestalt's of land, water, structures, life, uh, and I think, yeah, natural structures and stuff like that. I think there are five of them. So, yeah, they get to pick one out of the five. Um, and it seems to be going okay so far. Um, I can't give any results because some of the events are haven't happened yet. So we're waiting to see what happens. The initial trial event we, we did, though, you know, just see if it would work with all five and see if the first five could do well. That was on Bitcoin, trying to predict Bitcoin two weeks ahead if it would go up or down. Um, and that one was 100% correct from, from all the guys on that. And I've done previous, you know, I've run previous projects that show that there is, uh, yeah, some very good possibilities of using uh, ideograms in this, in this way. You you had some stellar results on the ideogram ARV experiment, didn't you? It was crazy the very first accurate. one I did. Yeah, yeah. It was I, I can't remember the accuracy right now, but it was high up there. I did another one. I did a fifty target one that I still haven't analysed and and looked at properly. But I have to be honest, it was fifty targets, and I know I as project manager, I may have uh, sabotaged the project myself in the halfway through doing 50 targets one after another i was getting incredibly bored with doing it <laughs> so yeah i think i have to be honest i i think the task the, you know whoever's tasking and project managing is just as much a part as anyone else and i think i i think yeah. i did heavily influence that i think the viewers as well i have to be honest getting them to do 50 targets to a week for 25 weeks or more um it's just too monotonous and too much um, so I think that I think, you know, the, the effect in the latter part of that experiment, uh, got worse and worse. I don't know if in it, the real stats on it, I really should do the work up on it, but yeah, I just got, I, as I said, I self-sabotaged and yeah, I can't even look at it now because it's just like, it's 50, it's 50 targets to go through with 12 viewers on each target. So that's, you can imagine the amount of data that needs analyzing on that. Um, Deborah Lynn Katz worked it with me as well. She did blind analysis on it, uh. As well, which was was usually interesting. I did informed analysis. She did she did blind on it. But yeah, we will, we will try to put it out there at some point. I have some background info too on this uh, on a similar method. Um, um, so it's the method involves drawing directly market graphs. Okay, so I was at a conference and I think I don't forget for the Russell Targer, somebody said let's do that. And so a couple of us we all do diagrams. And, and I guess uh, for mine was was pretty good because this guy came up to after me and said. Well, you two guys did great. Uh, how about I'll pay you to do this? I said, we both said, we don't have a track record. We're just doing this in the class. But since then, John Vivanco and Julia Mossbridge for a time were drawing graphs, uh, direct market graphs and claiming some success. I don't know if they've continued, but for anyone who wants to uh, look at this kind of method, so there's jazzes with the ideograms and there's also sort of directly drawing the chart to see if it matches. Um, I play with that a little bit. Just yeah, like I quite a, I, ideogramming the the chart. Yeah, yeah. Future forecasting do that every week as well now. Yeah. Oh, nice. I do that actually. I do the, the technique I'm using is I do actually funny. I got this from Greg K's work where he does the three really quick 
ARVs in a row. Uh, they're very short, very quick impressions. It's mostly a sketch and a couple keywords, and that's about it. So I'm not trying to spend seven minutes or something in a long session for one ARV. So I do a sequence of three. And so it's like a most of the time they'll all agree, but I'll take the, if it's a two one way, one the other way, I go with the uh, majority vote. And then after that, I'll then actually go over to the market chart and then do a very quick ideogram direction. What do I, I mean, oh. it, it's, it's definitely kinesthetic, but I, it's, I'm much mm. more of a visual person where I actually, there's like a flash on the screen of where the bars are going to go. And then I'll draw that. And then I take all of that data down and say, okay, well, does it all agree? Is there incoherence between it all? Is there this, like, is it all disagreeing with each other? And when I do have coherence between all those things, that's when I act on that. And I, I, I literally, the one today I have, <laughs> I have right in front of me because, you know, I, I work in, uh, in the stock market every day. So it's, you know, it's like I'll draw the line and it's like, okay, well, this is, I'm seeing the bars go this direction today. And uh, it definitely works. It doesn't work all the time, but it definitely works. And I think it's a practice thing. Like you, you were talking about, Daz, the more you do it, I think the better you can get at seeing where the chart will go. The only challenge with it is sometimes the momentum or the velocity you don't quite see. And so it's like, well, how, how quick is it going to happen? And it is it. And so it's, so even though do the you overall. You should try a template. We, we started using uh, templates, you know, uh, with, with indicator lines on there. So you get to see the depth of the, you know, the movement of the flow. Um, Interesting. And uh, Naeem came up with a really good idea of doing a, we do Bitcoin now, you know, 30 days in advance every day. So 30 days on a chart. And he has, he, had, uh, he showed, he did the demonstration and showed us this when we, when we had our, our London thing. Um, he's got a good accuracy with predicting Bitcoin and essentially it's just loads of squares, uh, 31 days worth of squares. And you literally just draw an ideogram. Then you're like day one to 31. You're like, is, you draw little arrows. Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down or is it going to go sideways? And it's just literally one by one. It's just like day one, uh, day two, it fills up, day three, fills down. Doing And doing that approach, just little arrows instantly, you, you take about 30 seconds to a minute to do the whole chart. Um, I'm finding doing that on a regular basis as well is starting to show some very good um, accuracy. Very cool. I just use graph paper. <laughs> Same general idea. It's worked yeah. pretty well though for me. I, again, I don't do a ton of market stuff or anything, but um, when I have when I have tried using it, I'll, I'll just kind of do, I thought I might have some in this book I have here, but I'll just kind of draw an axis on the one side of the page and then start in the middle and close my eyes and let it rip. But it seems, seems, to, seems to be okay. <laughs> Here is the one that I did yesterday. I don't know if you guys can see this. I tried the screen share where this yeah. was the beginning of the line and I saw a dip and then a rocket up, like a massive up. And so this was my quick look. This was wow. my visual. And then notice like, so it was close, but it's like it still had still had more to do before that happened. So this is just on the QQQ. But this is, it's just really simple line drawings. That's all. Yeah. Yellow is, is what you drew? Yellow line? The yellow is what I drew. Yeah. So yeah, if I reshare. Sorry if that wasn't clear. So the beginning, so this is where I started. And so this, none of this was visible on this line. And so, and then it obviously went up first, but it still came down. So I saw it going down and then rocketing up, which obviously, you know, it did. But this is all post-market over here in the blue. And so it was essentially looking for it to come down and then launch back up, except when that happened wasn't precise in that light. Cause I saw this, this motion in, I don't know, two seconds. And then I just drew what I what I what I saw, the impression I had. So it's uh, maybe there's a way to get even more accurate. But I do that, and I do this in combination with my ARV 
And if there's co- uh, cohesion between the ARV and this, typically that's, I feel higher. I have more confidence in that when I have, when I use more than one method, essentially. So, well, I would say just for that particular example, though, it looks like your subconscious gave you kind of the most efficient information that you needed there. So you didn't need to hit every single one of those bars. You, you got that it's going to go down and then you pretty much nailed where, and then it's going to go up. So I've always found like subconscious information is always really efficient when it comes through. Um, and you know, especially if you're, if you're, I I would imagine since you're so adept at self-tasking that you've kind of built those efficiencies up like a, like a muscle almost over time. Yeah. You know, you do something for seven or eight years, you know, in one way, it doesn't mean you eventually, hopefully you have some, you start getting better at it. But, uh, yeah, it's, I think that's probably, it's true with anything, you know, if you, if you get, spend a lot of time working with a a monitor, for example, that's probably where you're going to be the best. Whereas if you spend a lot of time as a solo viewer and that's, there's different challenges and hurdles to overcome and you get better at whatever method you're using. So that's why I think yeah. You know, method almost. The protocol is an interesting one, though, John. How I'm curious, it, could you talk a little bit more about the protocol that the German, uh, the, it's who you mentioned earlier that Marty is like implementing? Um, right. I'd be curious about those details. I'm sure there's other people that would be interested in those details too. Yeah, let me see if I can call it up here. I've got it uh, somewhere, or maybe just from memory. Um, yeah, so. I, th- I think he's, he wants to share these details to some extent, as far as I know. So um, they have a team of three to five viewers. Um, they have a pool of photos, and they remove the photos once they're used. Um, they, um, as I say, have a, they don't discuss things before or after uh, at all, so that the viewer just receives a tasking, um, sends it in. They use photos. Um, I think... The people who won the 325K, I, I'm not sure if Eric does the same thing. The photos they use are not cut out because uh, if you cut out photos from a magazine, there'll be something on the reverse side, for one thing. And if you want to use a lot of photos, um, you can also just use photos online. Of course, you have to have a pool and, and uh, have someone who manages the pool, and that's pretty much all they do. They're not a viewer. They're not in charge of the task. And so there's this division of labor with a strict need-to-know basis, I would say, is on the important facets of it. Um, I wanted to go back at some point to an important topic here, which relates to what you mentioned about Greg Kay and what, what um, you're doing, Daz. Um, and that has to do with, is just one take at your, your target the best way to go, or do you want to use multiple takes? So we know that Greg Kay not only did three takes, he would do sometimes 30 takes, in other words, 30 brief ARE sessions on a single market prediction, right? And then he would use filters to increase his accuracy from, it was like 55% up to whatever, 60-some percent, something like that. So that's one way to go, using many trials to get the psi sort of a year. And other ways you can do that, of course, to have majority vote in a group, but that usually turns out to, the group manager in APP will, will use some secret sauce or some intuition to help <laughs> along where so that happens too but with this uh method you're doing dad it sounds like um it's a one trial thing but you do have a group of people doing it so i don't know if you take the uh, a majority vote or what you do with that yeah i do yeah have you found that you have to use your own intuition or you're just going straightly with the statistics that it were sometimes i 
I countermand what the viewer puts down. So if they're doing, if their ideogram to me looks like, you know, they've written it, it's down, but I'm looking at it visually and I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, it's, it's clearly more stronger in an upwards movement than it is in a downwards movement. I will mark what they say, but then I, I will make a note by the side of it that I feel that it may be, you know, slightly different. And then when I, you know, round it all up, I, I'm, I maybe give that credence or not. Yeah. Um, not to get too far afield, and David, you can straighten me out here, but I just want to mention this important factor too, since we're talking about many aspects of ARBs and so forth. And that is, you know, people like Ed May and other psych parapsychologists think sometimes that they are the ones that are psychic, right? And that actually has a whole theory about that as to why um, certain remote random number generator experiments work because the experimenter chooses when to stop and start the series. So. As maybe we know Daz is super psychic and he's running this experiment. Um, I imagine uh, everybody else here is, is psychic too. And so the issue is is it the experimenter that plays a significant role or is it the viewers and the protocol or is it a combination? So that's just another issue for people new to this who might want to think about it if you ever want to look into it more. I think it is important to have a good working relationship between your viewers and your taskers and PMs and all the people involved in a project and have everybody yeah. friendly and trusting each other and on the same page. Maybe that's one reason why the larger projects fail is that you haven't got that kind of group. Let me um, just mention it here and add on to that. Let me add on to that so that Russell Targ, as people may be familiar with uh, or not, who are new to the broadcast, from the Stanford Research Institute, you know, back... Uh, 30-some years ago, they did Silver Futures, and they did uh, one viewer, one tasker, and one investor. And they had nine hits in a row. They won, I guess, around $200,000 or something for the investor, made it into the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. Okay, great. Then they did a second series, and the investor was eager to have more results so that the viewer uh, had to turn in results before the result had occurred, had to turn in sessions before the result had occurred. And they got much more anxiety. Uh, they failed mm -hmm. nine times in a row. There were lawsuits. So, oh, no. you know, there's other factors here that um, have to always be considered. And as you said, David, absolutely, there has to be a rapport between the members of the group. That was the word that I was looking for, rapport. Yeah. If I, I think about it in terms of, to give a different perspective, like if I'm, if I'm going to play music with some random people at an open mic, you know, like it'll probably go okay. But if I'm going to sit, with with my band and we're gonna and we're gonna play like that's it's gonna be another level of, above because we have that 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 rapport the synergy uh, it, I think it makes and I don't know I, I think music is an entirely psychic process just myself but um, you know it's uh, I, I I see so many correlations between remote viewing and music over the years but um, I I think that I think that's, you're on that's another show <laughs> I know I won't go too deep there. <laughs> Good thing, because I was just going to ask you, Josh, about that, but I'll have to, have to, wait, <laughs> have to wait till next time. Well, we spent a lot of time on ARV. Um, I think we could probably deep dive some of the lotto stuff, John. I know you've had success. You're familiar. Oh, mm, I oh. like We talked about, I think, our personal lotto stuff in the last episode, but kind of what you've done. And I've heard you speak about this before, which are I've heard they're really fascinating. I, if you'd share it with those who are listening to this show, kind of your journey into that and your what you've done and how you found success, I'm sure there's people who would love to have, to hear that. Well, sure thing. So I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I've always had an interest in the lottery, much more than in stock market stuff. When I 
was in APP we you know we did stock market and this uh, firefly it's a major project and I was an apprentice learning it with Marty and, and a couple other people and it wasn't really up my alley I didn't feel for whatever reason whereas the lottery just feels friendly or something so I you know since I got into remote viewing around 1999 I've done quite a few lottery uh, big threes mostly you know over the years and about ni- to 19 I'm sorry 2016 I was remote viewing with a couple of other remote viewers alongside each other. And uh, one of them suggested, you know, maybe the results um, uh, occur in the future, not just on the day that you're remote viewing, but you're betting. Might be two two or three or four days in the future. And actually actually was not a new idea, but it was new to me. And so I went back and traced, uh, and I, you know, put this in the book, in the chart, of all of the hits I had going back to 2003 or so. And then I compared that with, well, what if, I picked it on the second day, third day, fourth day. I went back and researched that. And wow, there were so many more hits on the days two, three, and four, and it fell off over time. So it seemed like, I said, wow, this certainly seems like something to look into. So that's when um, I developed what I call the method of advanced picks, where you don't bet just one day. You have to bet the first two or three or four days, and it varies, you know, how you feel about it. Um, and so I kept charting that, and I started getting a lot of hits. Um, but it was also a combination, uh, and also, by the way, so Joe McMonagall and Ingo Swan both have said, well, as Ingo said, what he was trying to do, not lottery, but uh, predicting future numbers and call it analytics and letters, he said that sometimes the a field would form, we sometimes call it a universe, or a field would form of these symbols, and he and they would line up, and he could call them, and they would appear in sequence. In other words, time was sort of flaky in that situation. Mm-hmm. And Joe McMonagall has said, what if I told you that every time you remote view, you go a little bit into the future and the past, and nobody talks about it. It's in one of his books. So that was sort of confirmation from two of the grace that this time thing is also a factor here. So then there's the question of method. So I posted way back, you know, 15 years ago, 40 different methods that people had tried or that I thought of. And I... In our book, we have, I think, 15 of those methods. Um, the method that worked for me initially was dreaming, California dreaming, I called it, where I would intentionally try to dream the numbers and I'd wake up in the morning and futz with them. I found out I'd have to uh, do a little addition, and then I started to get a few pick three hits that way. So, okay, that was great. Well, good. wasn't great. Um, but then I just experimented with several other methods, and these are the ones I use. Uh, I always use more than one method when I do a lottery. The first method is like is automatic writing, essentially. And I try to do what I call numerograms. And it's curious because I don't try to draw an exact number. I do a sort of an ideogram, but I sort of want to get a, a first approach to a number. And if I get it, and I do it for all, say, five numbers or four numbers, if I do the lottery, if the first try works, then I write that down. That's a number that's, but if it doesn't, I'll try it a second and maybe even a third time with this fake sort of numerogram. I don't know if that's, you know, applicable for other folks or what's going on there, but nonetheless, that's the first method I use. The second method is I have an imaginary scene I go to. I go down my steps in my house. I'm on the second floor. I go out the back door. I go into the yard and there's a trampoline there now that my son has for our grandson. Anyway, I go under the trampoline and I go down into the earth. And I go down some series of steps, and I come out on a beach. I walk across the beach, and I sometimes see a few people there, or I conjure them up that I know from the past. 
I go over to a TV set, which is on a table, and I push them on the table. And on the paper, that I, I want also doing this on paper, so I'll push, I'll draw a little TV, which eventually I'll push it and see what image comes up on the TV screen. So sometimes an image comes up and sometimes it doesn't. But in any of these two processes, the automatic writing and in the beach scene, sometimes the number will just pop into my head. I call it thought, T-H-O-T, and I've advised by David that I should <laughs> look closely at using that. <laughs> but, well, I'm going to, you know, uh, um, and so that, that's the third source of those numbers. So then I tabulate those three methods and then I make my picks based on them. And I, when I was having success with return, return of investment for, you know, sometimes several months in one whole year, actually, I had a positive ret return of investment, 38% on the lottery using these methods. Um, I went, so that, that's essentially, those are essentially the, the methods I used. And I do think it's important to do more than one method. And also, yeah. of course, not to do too much of this, don't get bored. I'm always interested when I do it. I, and I might pick, take up, I've tried to pick five, by the way, you know, the last year or two, but I haven't made a serious effort at it. Um, and I just do it occasionally. And there's two forms of pick five. Again, if anybody's interested, it's called the, the quinto or quinto. That's like in Florida where the numbers are from zero to nine. So the winning number might be one, two, three, four, five, or it might be one, two, three, three, four. Might have double numbers. But that's still easier than the regular pick five, which goes from one to 35, one to 39. And those three big wins of 325,000, 75,000, 101,000, all were the regular pick five. Uh, mm -hmm. Another huge, massive attempt, might as well mention it. Uh, I think it was James Spottiswood that did this way yep. back, saying we're going to win the lottery by viewing all the different choirs that all these possible winning numbers are in. And I think yep. Stephen Schultz was involved and some other people. And so they got the right quadrant, but they had to buy, I don't know, a thousand tickets and they didn't have enough time to buy them. So they didn't win. <laughs> that was the biggest. They had the right number though. It was in their pool. They just couldn't buy them all in time. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Anyway, so that's just some of the methods and, and, and my methods, yeah, that I've used. That's really cool hearing your... Uh the TV. I hadn't heard that part before, uh, specifically with the television and going down and on the beach, because that's the times I've seen numbers correctly. It was like that, where I do it a slightly different method where I'm doing the ERV uh, cool down, where, you know, is a body most close to sleep or on the edge of sleep, mind awake. And then I'm, I'm a very visualized visual experience. And probably the, the most profitable one that I had was it was trying, this was in 2019, looking for the Bitcoin uh, low and a Bitcoin high at the time. This is right before the COVID crash. And I was working with an investor and he lives in New York. And so where I ended up going, because the prompt was just, well, let's, it was a very kind of open-ended prompt. I ended up on the street in New York. I saw him on the street corner and he just, hey, he's like, hey, come over here. And I'm like, okay. So I come over here and he says, look at my phone. And on the phone was Bitcoin and a number, and the number was ten thousand like four hundred something as as like Bitcoin price. And then I said, "Oh well, that's useful. Do you know what day it is?" And he said, <laughs> switched his phone, and it was February thirteenth on the phone. Uh, I'm like, well, maybe. that's even more useful. And it, it actually four months later played out on February thirteenth to hit ten thousand mid ten thousand five, and that was the high. The yeah, the sad part was is he he thought it was going to keep going, so he waited about twelve more hours before selling. So he sold like like 9.9 .9 or like right when it started going down and that was funny that was the COVID crash was uh right after the february 13th um but it was on a screen that someone had showed me in wow. a uh an altered state so it was, that's interesting hearing 
during your, your method. So I think the only time I've ever gotten all three numbers in the pick three, um, was in that kind of hypnagogic, just woke up in the morning, decided to dose it while I was still in bed kind of, kind of stage. I, I probably had some beginner's luck element there too, because it was one of the first times I tried it, but I, I, I got a very clear three, five, seven, and I did not buy a ticket that day. And sure enough, it was three, five, seven. Um, if you had bought a ticket, though, I wouldn't have got it. No, it would have been three five nine. Chicken or the egg? Um, that yeah. uh, the time thing. Just to jump back to that for a second, I when I was first training in remote viewing, what I did was um, just a repeated target of what is the um, the top story in my local news tomorrow. And uh, I think there this this issue of like the subconscious getting bored is is huge. I think, and we because we keep coming back to that too. But what I what I figure happened. So I, the first few days, I would get I would get the the photo from the top story of my of my local news, and it was usually some doctor talking about COVID or something. And and obviously, I guess I guess I got bored of that. And so then I I, I did this for a full month, and and I would notice like stuff would come up but it would maybe be two and three days until i got feedback um but the stories kept getting more interesting and it all it just started to become stories rather than the top story uh like my subconscious would grab the story that was kind of the most personally relevant or interesting to me um so i got all kinds of cool stuff about nature and music and halloween and <laughs> things like that so um yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's such a personal process, I find, like, uh, all, all of remote viewing, like, it's so, it's so deeply tied to that relationship with your subconscious that, um, you know, if, if you abuse your subconscious by making it do ARV 50 times in a row on super boring targets, like, I mean, you know, you'd get your conscious mind would, would and does sometimes get bored with stuff like that, yeah. right, so... There's there's know. a funny that's probably true for most people, but there are those those people out there who actually enjoy and thrive off those monotonous things. And, oh yeah, uh, no, you'll you'll find that they can actually do more. I found that I've uh, I've I've worked with some people where they just they actually really like that. They get enjoyment off of that just repetition and that's not no i feel like that's not the norm ever viewer so it's like to say that oh go do that and you'll have success is probably not not the prescription but it's it's like finding what works for you this is why i, I i'm always such a big advocate for exploration trying different methods experimentation and but at the same time not giving up too early so you almost have to give each one its due see be honest with yourself but don't let, if one doesn't work out, doesn't mean that it's, well, you just can't do it. So it takes perseverance. And I think probably everyone here knows that. So well, speaking of experimentation, uh, let me just share my screen quickly. This is a, um, here we go. So here is a sheet that I prepared for some lottery experiments where I'm trying an intuitive you know, just what number is it? I think it's a two. That kind of approach, visual, sitting there and trying to see images in kinesthetic, which was dowsing or something, to go through each of the two-digit numbers that I needed to get and try each approach for each of them, which is like quite a <laughs> lot of work. But I wanted to see which ones are more effective, if any. And I just went and pulled one of these out at random, and it's a funny example of this phenomenon we talked about last week, right? Because... Look at these. The, the first number is off by 11. The second one, off by two. Third one, off by two. Fourth one, off by two. Fifth one, off by two. <laughs> one, off by two. Every single number is off by two, apart from the first. That's pretty interesting. 
So is this you kind should. of thing which makes me give up doing the last three? You know? So you know what I would do with this? And this is because I've done so much, pro well, just for my own work, I've done a lot of problem solving. I've tasked other viewers. Um, I put it in my own blind pool. And I use a very, I don't recommend like a, a, a novice viewer doing this, but if you know a viewer, especially it's better if they're blind, obviously, and they don't even know about the project, is you could take that session or that piece of paper, set it up as a, as a remote viewing project, and then just ask the viewer to describe the primary cause for the erroneous results. And I've had a lot of success getting some insight by running just a regular remote viewing project from an ARV session. Like this seems like what, what, what really went on here and just to describe it in a conceptual way. And, and so it's a way of like self-diagnosing and is there, is there really feedback for that? No, there's not. So people are going to, you know, this, some groups could be like, well, it's not really remote viewing. It's like, well, mm. under some definitions, you could say yes to that, but data out of that has actually been useful in coming up with new experiments, new ways to adjust that has worked. So um, interestingly, one of them, and I did want to bring this up because I wanted to get, actually, I'd be curious what everyone's opinion is about this. One of those sessions that I ran, uh, it described an external influence on the viewer as the cause of the displacement. And it was really interesting looking at the data because there was a whole lot of the viewers, I mean, they were blind, but the viewer was reacting to this injustice that was going on where some influence was being, was affecting this person and they had no idea who it was. They had no idea it was being done and it was causing them to suffer in some regard. Now, I mean, suffer maybe. That was just the, how they perceived the, 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 the remote viewing going wrong. And so one of the things that I've done recently after seeing that, and like, I can't prove that, you know I mean? It's all just hypothetical really at this point. But one of the things that I've done is just really set a really firm intention before uh, I do any remote viewing work at this point. And we talked about this before, I suppose, on earlier podcasts where it's like, I am only open and available to information that's accurate, truthful, and honest in ways that are for my highest good. It's basically just oh, setting wow. this really clear intention that I have no interest in tuning into any sort of nonsense business that might be going in the non-physical space or however remote viewing is working. And uh, whether or not that's, you know, useful or not, it's probably hard to, to measure, but I'd be curious what you guys think on external well, influence, not just this, uh, uh, it's not just a protocol issue. It's there's actually mm. energy or groups or whatever out there that doesn't want remote viewers to be successful. Maybe even other remote viewing groups not wanting to be successful. One, I have one more point on that, which, uh, and that'll get, is I'm curious, secondly, Lim Buchanan did this thing where he put a lot of intention, and I just take his word for this. I, I don't know for sure, but uh, he said he put a lot of intention on this object that he wanted to make sure no one could remote view. And is when everyone, the story stone. Yes, the story stone. Yeah. And every time he's, and this is just according to Lin, uh, every time someone was remote viewing it, they get one of these side things. It was like constantly being diverted from the actual target itself because he had put so much intention on that. And so it makes me wonder, is that kind of stuff floating around in remote viewing psychic space that could influence remote viewers making money, that could influence sessions being accurate, particularly in this regard? Uh, I don't know. Like I'm kind of just 
spitballing here. I mean, but I'm not, not necessarily in the financial space, but certainly there are targets which are relevant to the security of nation states and their secrets, shall we say, without naming any names, which do seem to have some kind of protective mechanism. Um, and viewers repeatedly hit these sorts of phenomena when they're working blind. They will all miss the target and maybe get headaches or be fed an alternative target. So I think it can be done deliberately. Um, and I've experienced a variety of these sorts of things, and they, they do seem to be kind of different. You know, some of it's really bargain basement, and some of it's very elegant, right? Um, so it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. But, I mean, are you aware, Brett, of anybody deliberately sabotaging remote viewers' financial perceptions? Do you think, you know, the uh, the Illuminati are stopping us winning the lottery <laughs> so that it doesn't get the secret of remote viewing out? <laughs> no, I'm not, not so sure about that. Um, you know, I've heard... I think it's I've... a bit more subtle than that, though, isn't it? You know, it's not it's not a physical thing that's interacting. You know, I I actually truly believe. You know, especially after doing the uh, the project for David, where he asked us to, you know, what what is not allowing us to win the lottery. My data indicated that there is a non physical universal element that's having a say in everything. I I wouldn't want to say what that is, um, but it could be something akin to I don't know. You know, some kind of force that's looking out for each of us. Maybe yeah. You know, or you could say think, a force of nature. Like part yeah, of the workings of the universe. Because if you think, if you win 100 million on the lottery, it's going to change so much stuff into the future. It's going to have like this huge yeah. ripple effect for your life and probably for everyone in your family because you'd be giving out millions. Like it's candy, you'd be making it rain. Um, yeah. Unless you hate your family, I guess. But, you know, you, it would have these big knock-on effects. So maybe if we try and do things that are going to have these big effects, we run into some sort of balancing counteracting force yeah. and it's just occurred to me that there's like a comparison for this which is when people have premonitions of disasters or terrible events that circumstances very often seem to fall such that they're unable to prevent the event and they knew about it but you know they were powerless to intervene and anecdotally sometimes you know um law enforcement or whatever is able to intervene but there's it's it's like a a trope almost of Oh, I had the vision of the, the terrible thing happening, but I didn't know when it was going to happen or I didn't know where. I got just enough information to know that this was a real prediction, but not enough that I could change it. Um, I, I mean, who knows whether they're the same thing. It just kind of popped into my head. So, yeah. Sorry to sidetrack us a bit there. <laughs> but to add to that, I think there's, um, I think, you know, we can't think too linear with this as well or too simply. I think yeah. that there's the viewer and the viewer can obviously see forward and backward in time so we know that happens we've all experienced that we know that's a fact um so i think the viewer has an influence and there's data there from the viewer but i think you know anyone that's involved in the tasking they also have an influence in the project anyone that then goes on the view that project if it becomes public in any way they have an influence uh, i think the universe in some way has, has a say they have an influence but I also think that if we're looking at big things like, uh, let's say, the uh, Super Bowl, who's going to win the Super Bowl? I think you don't, you can't forget the other four billion people who also have an influence because they want one team or another to win, and they're constantly expressing that in their thoughts. And we know, we, we all know, we're psychics. We know thoughts have a reality. People can move things, change things with yeah. their thoughts. And we can Prayer review thoughts, right? So maybe, maybe every piece of information a remote viewer gets goes through yeah. the medium of thought 
Right. So you have so. you have all this all happening, you know, all juxtaposition with with each other for you know trying to get the data, and you know, you you as the viewer are trying to get the perfect signal out of this when you know it might not be that simple. There might just be all these affecting forces, and we hadn't even discussed you know possible geomagnetic planetary sunspot LST activity that might. Oh might yeah, also somebody affect. mentioned James Spottiswood. Yeah, um, yeah, we should. I don't we know about that a little bit. Yeah, we, I think I think we should. I don't know. Do we have an up to date, yay or nay, on the LST thing? Because I know that with I feel like he's additional experimenting. Yeah, the, he flip flopped a bit as he got he's more gone, data, didn't he? Well, I think there's been four. I'm not sure of the latest, and I could be wrong. So I apologize for wrong, but my it looked apparent. Then he. He, he kind of poo-pooed it, and then it came back that a new data set came in, and it looked really prominent again. But now, after even more research into that, he, it's back to nay again. So it's uh, I'd have to double check. That's just off the top of my head, so don't quote me on this. That's just my memory, but my memory is potentially faulty there. So um, I uh, the LSD stuff I played around with for a bit, and. There was a period when I was really focusing on it. This is back in 2022. And um, I actually, I wasn't paying attention to the LSD time. But when I went back like six months later to look at, well, I actually had this big dip in my accuracy in February and March. And I, I was always running the sessions at the exact same time. <clears throat> and it just so happened that LST, local side real time, which is uh, for someone who's not familiar with, with LST, uh, it's... A time that's based on, I mean, I'm going to butcher this, but it has something to do with the orientation of the planet with the center of, is it the solar system or the, the galaxy? I think you, you, guys can, you can actually pick galaxy. any star, but it's like a fixed point in the sky that doesn't change throughout the year. It's a different way to that. have a time, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's oriented, one of the theory is that the galactic center somehow is influencing us. Right. Ah, yes. And so when but it has mystery uh, waves, when the Earth is in a position that's not, and you're on the other side of the Earth, yep. you, you know, that is the LST. And, and the last I heard was that uh, Spinoswind had said it was still a real effect. And May had said so too, looking at the same data. But but you may be right. Maybe it's been a subsequent. But anyway, so Adrian uh, Ryan is another person who's published on this. A number of people have published on whether there's a relationship between psi, PSI, and geomagnetic factors, including local factors. So there's some literature out there if anybody wants to look into yep. that. And I think most of us don't track it because we, we get results anyway, pretty much, uh, without times. But it may be the optimum times do exist, and we just haven't researched it enough. Before we before we move on with this, I think Josh has to drop off now. So <laughs> thanks for coming along. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. Just uh, bef before I do roll out, uh, on the geomagnetic thing, um, again, this will be anecdotal, but I have noticed a couple really, really bad sessions that I've had on days where there's been high geomagnetic storm activity from like a solar flare or something like that. I, I think there really is probably something to this. I mean, if you if you look at the Schumann resonance, which is 7.8 hertz or something, that's um, around the same range as like low, like high theta kind of brain waves. And I, I personally found that kind of brain state works better for remote viewing too but um i i, I feel like there's got to be some kind of connection there with uh you know the mother earth man she's she's powerful <laughs> anyway yeah thanks for having me guys it's been a pleasure and um we'll talk soon okay. yep see you soon take care, take care. Take care josh yeah
Yeah, I have oh, an email chain with with James, and I asked him again. So that's why I'm just trying to see if I can find it. I, I wanted to bring up a related topic here, if I could, which I think is important. Um, if we're ready to go to an, another topic, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's number numbers. It's alpha, uh, analytics is what Ingo Swan called it when he tried to remote view numbers, letters, and symbols. And he worked at it for four or five years. And uh, Daz and I, and probably others, have seen a lot of the results that he came up with. He eventually decided that there wasn't enough there to really promote it. He did give regular reports to Ed May at Stanford Research Institute on that. So that's the whole topic of if we could remote view numbers and words and letters. Remote viewing would be a far more powerful tool. And so I I did a couple of experiments about a year and a half ago with that. Um, and the idea, too, is to look at past numbers, not just future numbers, as we do in the lottery. And it's been hardly any work looking at the past numbers and trying to remote view them. The Stanford Research Institute did a number of experiments that Ed May and Sonali Patmawaha wrote up in the Stargate archives, four volumes, very thick. And actually, there's some experiments in there with alphanumerics, which are more positive than one would think, having been around this field for 20 years and what some of the leading lights have said about it. No doubt, it's different. It's difficult to remote view numbers and letters. But here's a couple of uh, quick anecdotes. So there's a published paper um, by Chinese researchers who scoured, I guess, the plains and mountains of China, trying to find people who could remote view uh, alphanumerics, well-concealed, wrapped up. And they found one teenage girl out of, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, I guess, who has public, who's in the paper that was published and could remote view, like a license plate, basically, the same kind of information, amazingly accurately. In, and not just box, which means any order, but in the exact order, straight order of the, of the alphanumerics. So that's one example that you can do it in. Another thing to mention, I think, is that Daz and I got a report from a person who went to Russia in 2003, a person who's an upstanding uh, person in the public sphere, although I don't think they didn't give us permission to use the name. Anyway, went to Russia and was taken to an institute that allegedly Putin had set up, where they were training people in PSI, remote viewing, and other huh. measures. And they had a lot of people there. It was very it looked like it was well-funded. And he said, you know, let's have a demonstration. And they said, well, let's have a demonstration. We'll set one up for you. He said, no, no, I've got this magazine under my arm. Can, can they read this article that's in it? <laughs> and according to this person, the uh, young man, I guess, read in English segments of that article that was under his arm. I mean, this is hard to believe. Like when, when Simeon Hine talks about a guy in Japan, we had a cigarette fly across the room and into Simeon's pocket. He's like, oh my God, you know. So in other words, it appears that there are some people who can read alphanumerics, but we haven't, we don't have a clue as to how they do it. And it's very, uh, the experiment I did in the fall a year and a half ago clearly showed that there was just one or two times out of 40, like that we could get the name correct of a past president or something like that. Anyway, I thought I'd read that because that's really a much more important area than all this lottery stuff, but it's much harder to do in an appearance of the lottery even. Well, I've had success doing that in extended remote viewing. Um, I spoke about that briefly in the last show, where I could really clearly see the number, I would, you know, one, two-digit number at a time, and then after that I got nothing but noise. And the, the first two numbers were so good, they were so clear and perfect, and they were correct. 
but that was the point that I kind of gave up trying to refine the the remote viewing side of approaching the lottery because it was so obvious that there was something else getting in the way yeah. and stopping me from doing that. Well, the thing that you, the story you brought up, John, what it reminded me of is uh, the, I mean, I don't know the veracity of these videos or um, the research done on it, but I've, I've heard about it and I've seen videos where kids, young kids are taught to read through blindfolds where they'll have like a cloth over their eyes and a full-on blindfold mask over the top of the blackout cloth. And then they're taught, I mean, these are like six-year-olds, five-year-olds, and they'll practice, like it seems like straight how do you practice something you can't see? And uh, they'll mm -hmm. practice reading words with their hand, actually. They'll take their hand and it's on, There's no, it's not Braille, it's just a book, a regular book. They'll put their hand on it and then they'll read uh, the words verbatim, line for line for line for line, without actually visually seeing it. And one of the the speculation around it is: is there information coming into their through their nervous system through their hand, like the light? Because there's like even our skin has it, it emits and releases light, and you can actually there's little boxes. Uh, was it Irva? No, it wasn't Irva. Was it a there's a different conference I went to where someone had a box or like, put your hand in this box. And it was able to actually measure all of the photons being emitted that was coming off of your hand. And like, is there some way that your, your brain can begin interpreting what is bouncing off the photons that are coming off your hand as far as text on a page is concerned that as a kid, maybe they can learn. I don't know, but it was a really interesting video. And I know there's been a lot of uh, little schools that have popped up around the world where they teach young kids yeah. to read without seeing. And for example, the other thing they'll do is they'll have a blindfold on, they'll put their hand around a corner and they'll say, okay, tell me what's around the corner. And they'll actually be able to accurately describe what's around the corner without even seeing. So is it a parlor trick or is there something more going on here? Uh, mm. You know, make up your own mind, I suppose. But there, I know are, there are a lot of videos there. on YouTube of kids doing that. Yeah. yeah. And it's quite compelling. You know, they're, yeah. they're very good child actors. Um, if they're not doing these things and I've seen them doing like assault courses and hmm. reading words for seemingly independent interviewers and driving go-karts is my favorite one where they're racing go-karts around a track and they're all racing <laughs> each other and you can see them like stopping to avoid crashing into each other and they're doing the cut and you know I don't know how you could really because they've got the mindfolds blindfolds the really thick ones you really can't get any light through those. Yeah. They're wearing boots, I think. Um, I think there's there's enough stuff I've seen of that to think there's a real phenomenon there. Is it the same as remote viewing, though? Is it the same modality? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not so sure. Um, the way that they speak about that developing is that it can start in a, a like a spot that they can see that's maybe in their peripheral vision, and they'll only be able to see up there. So they'll be holding the book up to one side of their heads and it will kind of grow over time and it seems to develop in a way that's quite different um there is i forget the chap's name but there's there is a series of videos online from a guy who did one of the courses that you can go on to learn how to do this um he, he doesn't kind of give away all their proprietary material but he just talks about his experience of doing it and how he was developing this skill and it sounds like they were doing a lot of meditation breath work energy work kind of a lot of spirituality adjacent practices as part of developing this um 
but I don't know any more than that. I think it's interesting, though. It's cool. I'd, I'd I, enjoy uh, giving it a try. Just today, I saw a video uh, from, I don't know who posted it, but there were a couple of videos of Russians scientists who were claiming that, um, yes, you have metal plates on the people's eyes that they're testing and that somehow the information is received by the brain. And they were actually claiming that they could look at brain scans and tell uh, that there was information received there. I'm agnostic on it myself. I just haven't seen enough convince me. And here's stories like Ed May said he, he went to China and watch people doing this and he, he felt sorry for the kids because they're blind and they go and look at the, and why don't they turn around? You know, why do you have to have, you're reading, you're holding a book in front of you. Why not just, if you, if you can do that, why not turn turn your back? But I, I you know, Sean McNamara has also been uh, looking into this and I think he's even teaching it now um, and did it at, at the uh, APP conference too. So I'm open to it, but I just haven't seen it myself and I really want to see it myself to, to believe it, I guess. Or watch a lot of videos like you say, David. Totally. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you guys wanted to chat about that you think people listening to this might want to hear about? <laughs> or anything you're working on now, John? You said you're, I know you said something at the beginning that you're working on. A new book. Uh, yeah, I, I'm working on a book, but it's going to be a free source book PDF. And probably not appropriate to talk about the contents here, but sure. except that, hey, that it starts with dialectics and ends with remote viewing and the bridge is consciousness. I'll leave it Very there. cool. Very cool. Awesome. Um, it's not going to be as as long as this one. Is no, it? it's going to be <laughs> PDF. So. It's, it's, this book is a good exercise for the mind and the body. <laughs> Great paperwork. Yeah, yeah. If, if uh, anyone who listens to this doesn't know, definitely go pick. If you want to learn more about ARV, uh, John and Deborah Lynn Katz put together that fantastic yep. book on associated reviewing. Yeah, it's it's really it's the the master collection, and it's it, I'm. I'm very ha thankful, John, you did a great job with that. So they put that together. I think that was a big service to the field and yeah. people who want to start up now can kind of see what's been done already all in one place to yeah. then go from there. I think that's a big service, I think, to everyone who's getting into this now. So yeah, I'm sorry, right. we spent 16 months on it. And I, I always yeah. say, I worked with Deborah for 16 months and we never had a serious disagreement. It was amazing. <laughs> that's cool. We got reviews from Russell Tarr. And Indeed. Right. Yeah. We guys well, let's wrap else? it up then. Yeah, I think. Okay. Let's... Cool. Well, thank That's you very much for coming and sharing yeah, your yeah, thoughts. Thank you, John. And thanks, Brett and Daz, for coming along too. And we will see everybody in a couple of weeks' time, I believe. So goodbye. Ciao.